visible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might have preeminence. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So I want to give you, just like I gave you seven pictures of my children, I want to give you seven pictures. I think God has given us seven pictures of his son here. And so we're going to, we're going to th- this really is many sermons that we could go into. We could spend oh, a month easily on this passage. We're going to be able to spend about 25 to 30 minutes on it. So I want to give you seven images, seven pictures that God has given. But before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of a context just quickly Paul wrote this to the, the church at Colossae, which some people say used to be, it used to be a great city. But right, uh, right before Paul wrote this letter, some people say one to two years, there was an earthquake in Colossae. And it destroyed a lot of the city. And so some people would say that even as he writes this, he's assuring people, as we see, he's the God of creation. That he's even the God of the earthquakes. And so... Also, this is a, a hymn that was recited by lots of people uh, in churches and, um, and some by the people who didn't believe fully in Christ that this was recited. But Paul takes that hymn and changes it and alters it a little bit to fit what he's about to say here. And so we see the seven images or seven pictures. The first is, it says, he's the image of the invisible God. Okay. That's just a way to say he's incarnated. God has come, zipped up that flesh suit, and is walking around as a human. That's the way he's saying he is the image of the God. Now, if, if you notice, that harkens back to Genesis when it says in Genesis 2, we were made in the image of God. But notice it doesn't say he's in the image of God. He is the image of God. It's quite different. It's saying he is God. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the exact representation of God. So Jesus is God. By the way, you could divide this. I'm going to go into these seven pictures. But you could divide these seven pictures really into three categories. Um, for those who like to see ahead, like to know the notes. Is that Jesus is Lord over creation. Jesus is Lord over the church. And Jesus is Lord over the new creation. Okay, so he's Lord over the creation, the church, and the new creation. So he is the, he's the image of God. He is God. Secondly, he's the firstborn. Um, now, oftentimes it says, so it says he is the firstborn of all creation. I remember several times on the beach sharing my faith down in Daytona Beach or uh, down in Myrtle Beach. And Jehovah Witnesses getting into arguments or conversations and pointing to this very passage. And saying, see, it says he's the firstborn of creation. Jesus was created, not begotten. He's not God. He can't be. He was created. Well, that's not what that passage, it's not what that phrase means. Whenever it says firstborn, 
If you go look throughout the entirety of scriptures, firstborn is a sign of order or rule or the, the first. The firstborn got all the inheritance or got a double portion of the inheritance. The firstborn was the executor if the father died. He took over. That's what it's saying here is that he is, he is before all things. Um, it is, it's the idea of rank. He's the legal heir. Another passage in there says um, that, and he's talking to some uh, Pharisees, he says, before Abraham was I. That's the picture here, is that he's before creation. It doesn't mean that he was a part of creation. It means he's eternal, okay? Um, so he's the firstborn of creation. By the way, uh, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis where we're talking about using this passage here. I want you to view this passage, this sermon, in two different ways. I want you to take it in as, as knowledge uh, to help you be an apologist, an ambassador for Christ. But I, so to defend the faith, but I also want you to take this in at, to delight in Christ. C.S. Lewis said, a man can't always defend the truth. There must be a time for him to feed on it. And so I want you to take this in as some defense for the faith, but also some food to relish in. This is Christ, not just for them, but this is the Christ for you. So not only is he the image of God, he's the firstborn, so he's before our creation. It says he's the creator. Okay? So it's the quill of what Henry Ford is to the assembly line or to automobiles. What Stan Lee is to the modern day comic books. What Steve Jobs is, is to Apple. Or what Walt Disney is to Disney World. The creator. He came up with it. And even those people really didn't, they were creative, but they didn't create. It wasn't out of nothing. They took something that was already developed and developed it more. That's all they did. They're developers. Um, my wife and I have a joke oftentimes. I, I said in college, I was, a, I was a cook. And she said, you weren't a cook. I said, yeah, I worked at a place called the Educated Palette. She said, what did you do? Well, I would, I mean, I would take noodles I, that were already cooked and warm them up. Or I would take pizzas that were already made and put them in the oven. And I was like, yeah, I was a cook. She goes, no, you were, you were a preparer. Someone are, you, you were just an assembler. That's all you were. You weren't a cook. Because the cook has the connotation of taking things from scratch and making them. Well, Jesus is the cook. We're just preparers. We just take what he's already made and make it a little bit. We develop it. We, we create it, make it creative. So all those people were creative, but they are not creators. Um, when I was working on the sermon a few days ago, uh, my son Scout came to me and he sat up on the bed and sat next to me. He goes, okay, dad, I want to help you. He's always wanting to help me. He says, I want to help you write your sermon. And uh, I said, okay. All right. So we started talking and um, we we're talking about this creation passage. By the way, this is a, just a neat experience looking out right now. This is like throwback Sunday. This is like ni- 2015. This is like 1915 with all of y'all fanning. And it's hot. I thought about changing my sermon title to something about hell. Uh, to be a little more applicable. Anyway, um, so, so Scout's helping me with my sermon, and he just starts asking questions about creation. So he's like, what's beyond the world? You know, we start to find the planets. What's beyond the galaxy? And of course, just like those hard questions in the video, what's beyond the universe? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. It's a white wall, I guess. Kind of like the Truman Show. Or maybe it's God's hands. But we started thinking about that, and we, so we started looking it up, and this is pretty interesting. The furthest star that we can see, uh, aided by a telescope, is 13 billion light years away. 
All right, that's billion with a B. Now, to give you a context, that's just like mega miles away, right? So how do we have a context for that? To give you an idea, we, Scout and I started investigating how quick does, how fast is light? How fa- fast does light travel? Um, and it travels a, like a, a little bit over 186,000 miles per second, okay? So whenever you say, you say second, it's gone around the world about 27,000 times. All right, that's pretty amazing. Now, the fastest machine that man has ever created is the space shuttle. And for it to go and remain in orbit, it has to go 17,500 miles an hour. Okay, 17,500. Let me re-say that. A little over 17,000 miles an hour. Okay, to give you a perspective on that, that means the space shuttle in one hour can fly from Charlotte to Australia and then back to L.A. in one hour. Okay? Now, in that same hour, light can go, like I said, around the world a little over 23,000 times. So that's why we measure light years, because the light can travel so many uh, miles in a year, and it's just astronomical. But a space shuttle, if you just say a space shuttle, in one year, how far could it travel? It can travel about 150 million miles, 152 million miles. That's to Mars and just beyond Mars in one year. But light is so much, would travel so much further. It's 38,000 times faster than the space shuttle. And so when we say 13 billion light years away, that's a huge space. That's massive. And Jesus created that. And he might be holding that in his hand. That might even be too big of an analogy. But he, he's created that. So when we say he's the creator, he's created massive, large spaces. That's how powerful he is. Not only is he the creator, he's the conserver. Okay? This, this is a great verse here. It says in verse 17... And in him, he's before all things, and in him, all things hold together. It means he conserves things. He not only is the architect of things, but he keeps them maintaining them. Things would fall apart and devolve into chaos if he was not a part of this, this world. It's, it's why he's not a watchmaker God. He just started it and left it. You know, my dad was in the banking industry for, for decades. And one of his jobs when we moved to a small town was he started the trust department for the bank. And it had no, had zero dollars in the bank for people investing for their long term. And so he, he was charged with starting the trust department. So he did, and eventually they, they grew and they had workers. But I remember he would get two weeks vacation and we would go camping. And I would be, sometimes go up to the, the, the second floor with my dad. And I would see the workers up there. He usually had two, three, four secretaries. And they said, Al, just go. Just go. We'll take care of it. You're not going to be missed. Just go. It will probably run better without you. And he's like, okay, okay. And he's walking out the door. And, and we came back, and it was not in chaos. It was a well-run machine. So my dad was the architect, the creator of that trust department, but he was not the maintainer. Jesus is both those. He, he's everything. That's what this passage is getting to. You know, whenever you buy a house, you, you deal with a realtor. But there's so many things that happened before that realtor sells the house to you, right? There was the contractor who had to build it. And then all the other subcontractors that had to build it under him. And then before him, there had to be a land developer. 
that, de- that developed the land. But before him, there was zoning requests. There was the city and the state that was involved. And then you keep tracing it back. Eventually, it was given to us by the king of England, right? But all those things, when you buy a house, there were so many things that had to happen and, and go on before you bought that house. Jesus is all those things. He created the world and he maintains this world. It's pretty amazing and mind-blowing when you start to think about it. That he is the glue of all things. He preserves all things. It's interesting that we go right next to this. Is So we just talked about he is the Lord of creation. And then it goes right into this strange verse. It says, and he's the head of the church. And then goes right back into creation. A different type of creation. So it wedges this, this statement that he is the head of the church right after creation and right before the new creation. And so some commentator says it just shows that the church is going to have a premier role in the redemption of all this world. And when, it's, when I say the word redemption, that means it's going to buy it back. He's going to make it new, which we're going to get into. But it's not just us. It means everything. It means this world. This world is cursed because of Adam's sin. It means he's going to make things new. I, I was just looking out uh, yesterday. And I've still got thorns in my hands from it. But there was this vine that I planted for Stacy on Mother's Day a couple years ago. And it's only gotten about this high. But right beside it was this thorn bush that was this high that I didn't plant. That just came up. And I had to get gloves on it. I even went through the gloves and, and still got in my hands. And I think, Jesus is going to redeem that vine. He's going to redeem. There's, there will be no thorns and thistles. He's going to redeem all of creation. But he's the head of the church, which means he gives life to it. Now, it's interesting. Paul, he, he grew up in a Greek culture as well as a Jewish culture. But he would have known this, that there was a saying of the day that Zeus is the head and on which all things are dependent. That was a famous expression kind of the day that Zeus is the head and all things depend on Zeus. So he just flipped on. He substituted Zeus for Jesus and said, Jesus is the head of the church and we are dependent upon him. Now, again, you've got to ask yourself, why is Paul saying this? It's because the people his audience is writing to have Jews that they're in the valley they're living in. There's a lot of Jews that settled over the 300 years before that. And then there's a lot of Greeks that went in. So now there's this amalgamation of this religion, which had the structure of Judaism that, that had patterns of, of, of um, feast and festivals and circumcision and all this. But then you mix in. This, this syncretism of all these cultish practice, practices. And so Jesus, I mean, Paul is speaking to them and saying, no, Jesus is the head of everything and he should be everything for you. And if there's Jesus and for you, that and is an idol. What comes after the and is an idol for you. He's, Paul's trying to put his finger on it for the Colossians and the Holy Spirit, I hope, is putting his finger on it for you. The last two things he says here is that he is the firstborn from the dead. Again, we see this picture. This is part of Jesus being the new part of the new creation. The first verse I ever learned when I became a Christian when I was 19 was 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. He, he will make all things new. And that's the promise. That's where we live. Right now, the time between, we realize that this, we live in this ancient ruin, things that are cursed, but Jesus is going to come back and make everything new. So Jesus, in a sense, is a movie trailer for us, right? So he died and he is, he rose again. And that's what's going to happen to us. 
And that's what has happened to us in a spiritual sense is that we've died and come back. It says that he might be preeminent. It also says that it pleased the Father. I want to talk about those two things in just a few minutes. Preeminent just means that he is sovereign. He has control. He is the supreme power. He has dominance. Jesus has the authority in your life, whether you give it to him or not. Okay? He created you. He made you. If you're ever resisting him, you're resisting his supremeness. He's the only one that has the right to tell you what to do. Anyone who has kids knows that their kids don't want them to tell them what to do. But Jesus has the only authority to tell you what to do. He created you. He made you. He knows what's best. So he's preeminent, which means he has no boss. And it says it pleased the Father. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Now, that's interesting. That brings up two things. Please means a deep satisfaction. Um, and, And God had deep satisfaction in Jesus. Because he lived the life and he obeyed and obeyed with a good heart. Um, So I I look at the passage that Dean read. Whenever Jesus was being anointed as as a rabbi, it says he came up out of the water and the spirit descended upon him. And it, it says, this is my son. He's pointing to him. He says, I'm a proud father. I'm deeply satisfied in my son. It's an incredible blessing by God the Father. But I want to tell you, there's another time God was pleased. And and we can see it in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. Many of y'all know that chapter as the suffering servant. But it says this. And this is controversial among some believers. But Isaiah 53 says, and this is the NAS. But I want to translate a bit. It says in the NAS, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. A better translation is it was the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. Because God knew that Jesus had to die for you and I. Because our debt was too much. It was too much. And so God came in flesh form. And he had to kill his son. But he pleased, it pleased him to offer his son to us. And I want to see how that, that plays out in two different ways. So let me, let me back up just a bit. Last week, uh, last Saturday, marked the 71st anniversary of D-Day. So I want to show some, some pictures and talk just a little bit about it. So June 4th, 1944, uh, that was an invasion of northern France by the Allied, by, um, uh, by U- U.S., Canada, and Great Britain. We invaded northern France because Germany held it for several years. And so I want to show you just a few pictures. This is Dwight D. Eisenhower talking to the troops. And it was interesting, uh, Dwight, whenever he, whenever they, they started planning the, uh, the invasion years ahead, and it was intricate because there's over a million people were involved in this invasion and they had to keep it secret. And so they even created a fictitious army at another place of France, another place in England that had inflatable tanks. It was not real tanks, but they were inflatable. They had them off the side, so it was incredible deception going on to, to try to cover their plans that were going on. But if you put Eisenhower back up there, Melanie, um, Dwight D. Eisenhower, you know what his title was? The Supreme Allied Commander, which is interesting because it means he was over admirals. He was over air corpsmen from the private up to the generals. He was over everybody, and he's speaking to the troops, and he wrote uh, two different letters whenever... 
um, the invasion. He took out a pen and paper and wrote a letter taking full responsibility if the invasion failed. And then he wrote another letter if it was successful because he didn't know. So let's go to the next. It shows a slide of we attacked in nine different points in northern France. And so that initial invasion happened on June 6th. There was 150,000 men that came over on the boats. Let's go to the next slide. I think it will show some airborne. Uh, yes, so these are airborne troopers. They were dropped in a day before. So several thousand of these troopers, which was a new, a new thing in the army, which was going to be troopers from up above. And this is on June 5th, whenever they're addressing all the airborne troopers about to head out. And so the plane, the next shot of the plane that they had, uh, had noticed the stripes on the plane. This was one of the planes that were delivering the airborne troops. They were called invasion stripes because in several battles before, allied guns were shooting down their own planes. So they put these stripes on it to show that, no, this is for the invasion. And so they dropped them in behind enemy lines. And before the boats arrived, we either dropped or shot in seven, uh, seven million tons of bombardment of, of, of shells or bombs on the coast of France. And so um, that landed there. And these, uh, you've seen this picture before. This is the Higgins boat. This is a boat designed in Mississippi to rescue flood victims. And someone said, well, it's flat bottom. We ought to use that flat bottom boat to get us up on the shore. And so 30 men could be held in this. And so some of the beaches they arrived at, if you could go to the next slide, were not very contested. Others were very contested. So the men would get off and try to cover the 100 yards or so. And all the different mines and, and tank obstacles, machine guns that the, the Germans had there. If we go to the next slide. Um, the Germans had taken two years to build what was called the Atlantic Wall or uh, uh, Fortress Europa. Um, and so... Some of the cement that was in the cavities that the Germans, the bunkers they had, was over 16 feet thick. And so that when those bombs would hit, it would not break the cement. It would make a loud noise, but it would just bounce right off of it. And so this was over 100,000 workers built this over two years to try to defend because the Germans knew we were coming. We we're going to invade. Uh, what's the next slide there, Melanie? Okay, so the Germans had machine gun nests. They had 50,000 defenders up on the, the beachheads to, to repel the attack of 150,000 allies that were coming in. Some of those Higgin boats, all 30 men would perish before they, the, the door rises open. But eventually, um, we were able to get on the beaches. And in that first hour that the, allies, the allied troops arrived, it was a one in two chance that you were going to be a casualty in that first hour. We landed at 6, so between the hours of 6 and 7, it was a 50% chance you were going to be hit by shrapnel or by a bullet and either die or be wounded. The next shot there, Melanie. Um, but eventually, we're able to take the beaches and move inland as a result of it. And God had incredible providence uh, in this as well. I mean, there was the year before the invasion happened, some of the plans in London, they had an open window because it was hot like this. Um, and one of the, the, the plans fell out, maps fell out of the window and blew down on the, the sidewalk. And a guy was walking by, picked him up, but he didn't have his reading glasses. So he didn't know what it was. So he knocked on the, the door of the war department and said, I found these down below. I, I don't know what it is. 
So God had incredible providence through all this. It was, it was the fullness of time. There were only three to four days that we could do this invasion in the month of June. It had to be high tide so we could get the boats there. Everything had to be right. The reason I go into this is because it was incredibly costly invasion. Time, energy, money, people's lives. I know of people that their father died in this. Um, it was well-planned. It had to happen perfectly. The reason I bring that up is because that's exactly what Jesus has done to us. Romans 5, 8, I mean, I'm sorry, 5, 10 says, and that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to, by, reconciled to God by the death of his son. So God has invaded this world. Jesus, through Jesus, he invaded this world. This is a song that we've sung before, Build Your Kingdom Here. It says, come, set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil while we're made. Come, set our hearts ablaze with hope like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church. We need your power in us. Jesus has invaded your life. And maybe he hasn't. I don't know where some of you, maybe visitors here today, and he hasn't invaded your life. You're resisting him. He's on the beach. Maybe he's in the boat. Maybe he's bombarding you with life circumstances. Or maybe you've had some brushes with God and he's, he's coming again. You're trying to repel. You're saying, no, not, you can have many areas of my life, but not this area of my life. But Jesus wants to invade every area of your life. He has the right. He is preeminent. The second thing is, if he has invaded your life, in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, it says that, that God is reconciling, there's that word again, the world to himself. Not just people, but he's reconciling the world. He's changing, he's making it new. And one day it will be totally new. But he's reconciling the world to himself and he's called us to the ministry of reconciliation so that we would be ambassadors. So God is not only... Is, is invading our life, but he calls us to now go invade other people's lives. That, that is, that's the, I think that's the key to the scripture, is that if anybody has the right to claim ownership of your life and to tell you what to do, it's him. It's that he has the right. He created you. He keeps you together. He sustains you. He's died for you. To restore, the, the, the definition of reconcile is to restore friendly relations with or calls to coexist, to, to live in harmony. That's exactly what Jesus has done to me. I was an enemy of God at age 19. And he reconciled me to him so that I might know him and I might bring others to be reconciled to him. This is good news indeed. So I would ask you to ask yourself, in what areas is God invading if you're a believer that you are holding back? Because there's always new frontiers that he's going to move out into and take over your life. If you're not a believer, I would ask you the question to ask yourself, what, what, where is he? Is he bombarding you with pain? Is he on the beaches? Is he beyond? Is he getting close to you? What are you resisting? Or maybe, church, he's telling us that we need to invade our neighborhoods. We need to invade other people's lives that we work with. We need to invade our family. And I don't mean you grab a, a, a gun and put on a helmet and run in and, 
You, you put pain on your face. It's much more nuanced and subtle than that. It means to simply love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this opportunity to hear the good news of your preeminence, of your supremeness. You are over all. You have no boss. But even even that, you, you submitted to the Father as the Son. There's even, you're incredibly humble. Father, thank you for uh, this opportunity to talk about, to share, to to preach about the good news and that you've invaded my life and that I, I pray that you would invade the souls of the people here and that we would be a part, you would use us to invade others, God, in a loving, biblical way. In your name, amen.